Got the big man. Country pulls free. And touchdown. Red Raiders with a second to go. Fourth and five. The national championship on the line right here. He's going for the corner. He's got it. All the band is out on the field. He's going to go into the end zone. He's going to be out of the Bears have won! No, returned by Chris Davis. Davis goes left. Davis gets a block. Davis has another block. Chris Davis. No flags. Welcome to the Mike Lineup. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Mike Linebacker podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tristan Pocock. Joining me as always is Alex Medley. How are you doing, Tristan? Doing great. And also joining me is Josh Burris. What's happening, boys? Got a big upset today to talk about. Yes, this is such a sweet episode as Ohio State fans. I love it. And I'm sorry to any Michigan fans who probably are not listening right now. But today we are going to be talking about the 2007 upset of Appalachian State over Michigan in the Big House. This game was one of the first games broadcasted on the Big Ten Network, which was making its debut this day. It was the first time that an FCS team beat a ranked FBS team ever. It's happened a couple times since, but we'll get there. This game happened in front of a crowd of over 109,000 people, and it was expected to be so one-sided that Vegas didn't even give the game a line. App State came away with the win and 400 grand from Michigan for playing the game. And potentially, as we'll talk about later, this may have been the beginning of the end for Michigan. But before we get there, let's kind of look at how how the teams came into this game. This was the first game of the year, so it's going to be kind of looking at last year and what they were returning and, and kind of the anticipation for how these teams were going to fare this season. Yeah, let's get to it. So in 2006, that was uh, one of the best football seasons Michigan's had in recent memory. They started that season off 11-0, and uh, and then they had that three-point loss to number one Ohio State, 42-39, and then they lost uh, to number eight USC in the Rose Bowl. So finished up 11-2, had a very, very great start to the season, lost to two tough teams there. Uh, however, next season, they were in the preseason rankings, they were number five in the AP. And a big reason for that, I think, was a lot of the returning talent on offense. You know, we'll get into that in a second. But overall, Michigan only had nine or ten returning starters, depending on who you ask. But they recruited very well. 2004 class was number six. 2005 class was number five. 2006 class was number ten. 2007 class was number eleven. So this team definitely had the talent there. Uh, they had a Wood Carr, who was one of their better head coaches in recent memory as well. This would be his 13th and final season with the team after being hired in 1995. Uh, He announced the decision to retire after the Ohio State game in 2007. Uh, Ended his career with 122 wins, which is the third most in school history. And one interesting nugget I found here about the coaching staff and the job that Lloyd Carr and his staff did coming into this game. So one player later in 2012 did an anonymous interview, so we don't know how true this is, but it was picked up by quite a lot of news outlets and stuff. And I guess a lot of the defense, well, a lot of the players, but especially the defense, decided to get stoned before the game to see how bad they could beat up on App State while high on marijuana. Uh, obviously, that didn't go out too well. <laughs> but um, the player also said that the team lacked leadership. Uh, nobody was stepping up. The coaching staff didn't really have a game plan for this game. Said stuff like they had no idea that Armani Edwards, the App State quarterback, was a dual-threat quarterback or anything like that, so they just weren't prepared, and he said that that was the day that Michigan football probably died. Yeah, so I think it's interesting to, I looked at Michigan's schedule a little bit that year, and it's pretty common for coaching staffs to go through and look at their their early season schedule and really game plan for their more difficult upcoming games, and early in the season, they had a pretty tough schedule, and it's pretty easy to see why they would kind of overlook this FCS opponent. They had Oregon, Notre Dame, and Penn State all right in a row immediately after this FCS matchup. So, I mean, it looks bad that they weren't really watching film for Appalachian State, but it's kind of understandable when you when you look back at it. That's true, yeah. I mean, most of the time for college football teams, you're starting off with like three or four easy games, easy non-conference games before you get into the, you know, the big bulk of your schedule. And uh, I mean, you just nailed it. Like Oregon, Notre Dame, Penn State, very rarely will you see a team playing that high level of competition early on. So that may have been the case. But yeah, I mean, you'd like to think that, you know, your raw talent 
on a big time team like Michigan could handle a team in the FCS or a team from the MAC or a team from the WAC or whatever small conference there is. But uh, just not the case for Michigan this day, whether it was because, you know, lack of preparation, whether it was because they were high, we don't know. But let's dive into Michigan's roster right here. So as I said earlier, a lot of talent we're trying on offense, including senior four-year starter Chad Henney at quarterback. The season before, he was Big Ten second-team all-conference with 2,500 yards, 22 touchdowns, eight interceptions. And then there was senior running back Michael Hart, who had 1,562 rushing yards and 14 touchdowns and was a Big Ten all-first team. Also finished fifth in the Heisman voting, so big-time player, high expectations. Uh, and then on the offensive line, there was senior Jake Long. So, I mean, there's three Michigan studs right there leading the way. And Henny also had a decent amount of targets to throw to, too. You got junior receiver Mario Manningham, who had 703 yards and nine touchdowns the season before, Big Ten first-team selection. And then senior wide receiver Adrian Arrington, who had 544 yards and eight touchdowns the season before. Yeah, so Michigan had four returning seniors on offense that are of note, uh, and three of them were at major impact positions. So quarterback Chad Henney, running back Mike Hart, and wide receiver Adrian Arrington, along with Jake Long on the offensive line. You don't see that too often where you have four returning seniors at such impact positions. And, you know, from my remembrance of these early Michigan teams, Chad Henney and Mike Hart and Adrian Arrington were, were playmakers. They were dynamic. You know, maybe they didn't have the level of success at the next level, but, you know, you don't expect to see that kind of talent returning to uh, a team as seniors. You maybe get the perception of unfinished business and that this team is going to be really motivated to kind of take a stride forward from where they were last year because these guys are foregoing their opportunity in the NFL to come back and prove something in college. Yeah, I imagine that had something to do with it. They had defeated Ohio State, you know, their big-time rival their freshman year, but then they'd been beaten by them their sophomore and junior season. So they might have been on a mission, you know, to get one more win. And this was also, you know, when the rivalry was very competitive. So, you know, if you graduate from Michigan with two wins over Ohio State, you know, that's, I mean, you're sitting pretty good, you know, from the rivalry standpoint. And then one final note on the offensive line. Mentioned Jake Long. Also joining him was Adam Krause in 2006, Big Ten second-team selection. Now, the defense is where things get interesting for Michigan. They lost Lamar Woodley, who was the Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year the year before. They also lost Leon Hall, their top defensive back, and only returned four starters on the defense. So it appeared to be a weakness uh, just from reading through. Some of the top returners were guys like senior linebacker Sean Crable, who had 37 tackles. Ten and a half of them were for loss, four and a half sacks the season prior, a second-team selection for the Big Ten. Uh, and then there was senior defensive back Jamar Adams, who had 47 tackles and an interception, also a second-team selection in the conference. And then junior Terrace Taylor was also another member of that front four that was returning. So it really appeared like the secondary was going to be a weakness, especially losing guys like Leon Hall. And then finally, I just want to touch on the special teams a little bit. Senior kicker Jason Gingell was a new kicker replacing the previous four-year starter Garrett Rivas and the school's all-time leading scorer. Now, guys, I found out that Gingell initially joined the team. He was an undersized linebacker as a freshman. And by undersized, I mean he was five foot nine, 180 pounds. So imagine a guy like that playing linebacker in the Big Ten, probably not a good shot. So he ended up making the switch to kicker. He hadn't kicked in any significant games. He kicked, you know, a couple extra points from time to time. You know, when you got a guy like Rivas, you don't really need to use anyone else to kick. But just a week before this game, he was pegged to take the field goal duties. So very inexperienced kicker coming into this game. Uh, not too much action. And they literally gave him the, you know, the duties right before. So maybe it was a surprise to him, too. And he had to quickly get ready. Yeah, also while researching for this game, I saw a quote from senior linebacker Chris Graham from Michigan. He said that each position on the defense was, quote, loaded in speed, which was a bit ironic after going back and watching this game. And you saw how Appalachian State on multiple occasions was able to pull away from the Michigan defense. And it really looked like Appalachian State had a faster offense than what we saw from Michigan's defense. Yeah, no kidding. A lot of speed on this Appalachian State offense. We'll dive into that here in uh, just a minute. But let me just give a little bit of background on Appalachian State. So, they came into this season the two-time defending D1AA national champs, now known as the FCS. Uh, they had defeated Northern Iowa in 2005 and then UMass in 2006. And, I mean, at the FCS level, they were winning a lot, guys. Uh, NC State was their only loss in 2006. And in 2005, their only losses were to Kansas, Furman, and then number six, LSU. And then the last three seasons, they went 27-0 and at home. So, I mean, they were just a machine. And they weren't a stranger to playing, you know, those FBS teams either. 
Uh, I just mentioned the LSU, but they had six wins over FBS teams. And kind of funny to look at, they all were over Wake Forest, an in-state rival. So, I mean, if you look at App State's resume, I think you could really compare them to like a modern-day North Dakota State. Like North Dakota State started winning, you know, all the FCS titles once Appalachian State uh, started to slow down. So App State was not a bona fide scrub by any means, but... You know, we expect a lot more from Michigan at the same time. Jerry Moore was their head coach. Uh, 19th season here at Appalachian State in 20, or 2007. He was previously at North Texas and Texas Tech. He finished with 242 wins all time. 215 of them were at App State. And that's the, easily the most in school history. I checked the next highest guy, guys, has 47 total wins. So good luck catching Jerry uh, in the win ranks. But let's look at some of the key players on this team. So it all starts with sophomore quarterback Armani Edwards, who was a dual threat. The season before, as a freshman, he threw for 2,251 yards and 15 touchdowns. He also rushed for 1,153 yards and 15 more touchdowns. And he became the fifth Division I player to pass for 2,000 yards and rush for 1,000, and just the second freshman to do that. And then at the running back, you got senior Kevin Richardson. The season before, he rushed for 1,676 yards and 30 touchdowns. In his junior season, both of those are school records, guys. And he was also the Southern Conference Player of the Year as a junior. He's been a two-time FCS All-American, and he was picked as a preseason FCS Player of the Year. Now, this Edwards-Richardson duo, guys, was probably the greatest in school history, just looking through all the school records. These guys, you can find them everywhere for rushing stats, passing stats. Like, they were quite the combo. And then on the offensive line, I didn't see any notable names, but they did have four of their five 2006 starters coming back. So got to expect there to be a lot of talent there, a lot of protection for Edwards and Richardson. And now let's look at Edwards' top target, senior wide receiver Dexter Jackson. So the season before, nothing very special, 33 catches, 470 yards, and three touchdowns. But he had some blazing speed, guys. The NFL Combine, after he graduated, he ran a 4-3-3-40. That was the seventh fastest in the whole draft class, which eventually led to him being a second-round pick. And we're going to see a lot of his speed in this game, guys. Now flipping over the defensive side, they did lose five of their top seven tacklers from the season before, but the secondary was still mostly intact. Junior Pierre Banks, their lean tackler from the season before, was back. But as I just said, you know, they lost a lot of their tacklers. That front seven was basically all new guys, and the strength was in the secondary. Corners Justin Wose, who was a four-year starter, and Jerome Touchstone, another senior, who had 38 tackles and two interceptions apiece the season before, and uh, 10 and 9 pass breakups respectively. And then safety Corey Lynch was a preseason All-American pick, and we're going to see a lot of big plays from him in this game as well. So that's kind of a little bit of background on both teams, and I just wanted to read this blog post I found you guys. So this is from the Maze and Brew blog. Picking the game, they picked University of Michigan to win, obviously, and they said, it's going to be ugly. One of the top offenses in all of college football against an undersized young defensive line does not mean you are going to have a good game. I'm kind of thankful the game is on the Big Ten Network because... The fewer people that see this, the better. <laughs> I mean, this is no disrespect to ASU, but win or lose, Michigan doesn't gain anything and only stands to look bad. Win by a lot, Michigan's a bunch of bullies. Win by a little, man, they must not be very good. <laughs> lose, mass suicide. <laughs> uh, they also predicted Michigan to go 11-1 and this season. Their only loss to either be to Ohio State, Penn State, or Wisconsin, one of their uh, bigger-time opponents. But yeah, I thought that was an interesting blog. You know, it's always funny reading stuff like this in hindsight. But yeah, let's let's start breaking down this game, guys. Uh, let me turn it over to you, Alex. Yeah, so before we really get into this game, I just wanted to ask, do either of you guys remember where you were when this game occurred? I do. Let's see. So I was actually at a family reunion picnic. Yeah, I mean, we were listening to the Ohio State game mostly on the radio. Everybody's pretty much a Buckeye fan, but they kept playing uh, updates from the Michigan game. And I found out at half, you know, that they were down. Everybody was shocked, and they kept saying, you know, like, well, in the second half, you know, Michigan started making a comeback, it looked like. And I was like, see, just a fluke first half, it'll be fine. And then, you know, everybody started going nuts when, you know, we all found out that App State had beaten them. It was insane. But, uh, yeah, that's where I was at. Yeah, I, I just have to assume I was at home. I don't really remember uh, too much about where I was, but I do remember the game uh, and the highlights for sure. Yeah, so in 2007, I believe this would put us all, all three of us in middle school at the time, and I was at Cedar Point, actually gallivanting with some friends. I didn't really know anything crazy like this was going on. I thought I was missing a pretty uh, pretty calm day of college football, and they actually came over the PA to announce that 
Michigan was upset by Appalachian State. So everyone naturally in the park either started celebrating or getting upset. Most of the people around me were celebrating. So that was pretty interesting to see. So as Josh covered, Michigan was a huge favorite in this game. And for good reason. Wikipedia said this was the first time an FCS team beat a ranked FBS team. But in 1983, a temporary Division I AA Cincinnati team beat number 20 Penn State. So I'm not really sure why they, they said that hadn't happened before, but I thought that was a little interesting that Cincinnati was a Division I AA team. I didn't know that. So since 2007, James Madison beat number 16 Virginia Tech. Eastern Washington beat number 25 Oregon State. And in 2016, North Dakota State beat number 13, Iowa. I actually watched a little bit of that James Madison game. I remember that. That was a wild day. I definitely remember that North Dakota State game. Uh, I, I know that it was a, a lot of people were a little concerned for Iowa because everyone knew that North Dakota State was a dangerous opponent. But I don't think back in the day people were thinking of Appalachian State quite in the same way, even though maybe they should have been. It's interesting to make a note of the number two in front of the team, right? I mean, number 16, Virginia Tech, number 25, Oregon State, and number 13, Iowa. While they're all ranked teams, they're not number five, Michigan, at home. You know, it's a a little different beast beating a top five team as opposed to maybe a top 25 team. For sure. It It is a little different, and this was probably the biggest upset out of any of those that we just named. So this game was a noon kick on September 1st, 2007. As Tristan stated earlier, this game was played in a packed big house with about 109,000 fans. It was a nice, sunny summer day in Ann Arbor at about 80 degrees. And Michigan couldn't have gotten off to a better start. Mike Hart had four carries and 46 yards on the opening drive, including a 26-yard run. He finished the drive with a four-yard touchdown run. Yeah, and Mike Hart looked really untouchable on that first drive. Like he said, four carries for 46 yards. And I know he ends up getting a little bit injured later in the game, and maybe that kind of hung around. But uh, after the first drive, it just didn't feel like he had the same um, explosive nature to him. And I don't feel like the offensive line really did as well blocking. But, man, that first drive, the offense really looked like it was humming. I definitely agree. They came out clicking on all cylinders early, and it didn't look like there was going to be any issue for the Wolverines to to clean up the Mountaineers team. But Appalachian State responded quickly. On third and four, Armonte Edwards hit Dexter Jackson on a five-yard slant, and Jackson turned the Jets on and scored a 68-yard touchdown to tie the game up. Third and four, they cash in on the third down, and maybe more. Off to the races. And going all the way to the end zone, the speedster Dexter Jackson. He was a Southern Conference 200-meter dash champion, and he ran away from the Michigan defense. This play was a bit odd because Michigan didn't try to bring a blitz or do anything crazy. There actually was a linebacker and defensive back in the immediate vicinity of Jackson when he caught the football, but he ran right between them. A safety also completely whiffed on the tackle, and Jackson was off to the races after getting through those three defenders. What this play reminded me a lot of, guys, was uh, do you remember uh, the touchdown that C.D. Lamb scored against Texas in that Oklahoma-Texas game where he caught the ball and it was immediately surrounded by like four Texas defenders, and he ended up making them all miss and scored the touchdown. That kind of reminded me of that just because of all the defenders that were around Jackson, but Jackson just blew them all away with his speed more so than using any moves. And when, t- when these types of games are played between these small FCS schools or these G5 opponent versus some of the college football top tier, uh, you know, the tone in these games gets set so early. And sometimes you see a favored team get off to a slow start or, or something like that. But defensively, uh, a lot of times it comes down to discipline and technique, which are, are really exacerbated in these types of matchups. Michigan went right down the field, scored, made it look real easy. Uh, and then App State had that third down, a three and out for App State there could have just spelled disaster for their for their morale on the sidelines and, um, you know, setting the plate to just take a beat down. But instead, they had that third and four uh, and just take the slant to the house, which just gives them that must much needed boost that that uh, if, if they don't get, I'm not sure that this game turns out the same way. Definitely. And part of that technique and discipline goes back to the experience that they they were lacking as well. If they would have had a lot of a lot of experience coming back in that secondary, they may not have made an early mistake like that. And 
you know, if they could have forced that three and out and went up 14 to nothing or something like that, it could have spelled disaster for Appalachian State and we might have seen a completely different game. But Michigan had a solid kick return up to the 43-yard line, but they didn't do much with that. They went three and out on a drive that ended in a big sack on Chad Henney by Pierre Banks. Banks came off the blind side and the tight end ran a route and didn't even try to chip the blitzing linebacker, so he had an easy path to the quarterback. Appalachian State followed with a three and out as well. Edwards had an eight-yard run on the first play, but then a false start and a sack set up third and long, and they couldn't convert. Michigan maintained good field position following a short punt by Appalachian State, and they took advantage this time. They had a couple of nice third-down conversions. First on third and 10, when Henny connected with Arrington to put Michigan at App State's 25. Then on third and four at the 19, Henny hit a short pass to Mario Manningham for first and goal at the 10. Chad Henny hit Greg Matthews on a crossing route to put Michigan ahead 14 to seven, and this was Matthews' first career touchdown. On Appalachian State's next drive, they mixed in some runs and were able to utilize some no huddle as well. The quarter ended with Appalachian State on Michigan's 32, second and six. So just summing up my first quarter thoughts, guys. Uh, I think you know from a Michigan standpoint, obviously you aren't panicking yet. You know, you got Mike Hart running pretty well. You got that 14-7 lead. And this is still, you know, an FCS opponent that nobody really knows too much about. But I think from an App State point of view, uh, you're pretty content right now being down just one score. You know, the team speed has caused some problems for Michigan's defense already. Uh, maybe it won't, at least it won't be the blowout that everybody thought it would be, right? Like, I think both teams, you know, are sitting pretty good right now. Yeah, definitely. So at the beginning of the second quarter, Appalachian State's drive continued. First and 10 at the 23, Edwards handed off to Jackson on a reverse. He used a burst of speed and took advantage of a couple of great blocks for another big play. He probably would have scored, but he stepped out of bounds at the four-yard line. A false start set them back a bit before Edwards hit Hans Badichon. Not sure if I'm pronouncing that right for a nine-yard touchdown pass, which tied the game at 14 apiece. Michigan went three and out on their next drive. Hart had a four-yard run, followed by a five-yard penalty for second and 11. Henny took a shot downfield to Manningham that fell incomplete. There was a lot of contact between him and Touchstone, but it didn't draw the flag. Appalachian State blitzed six defenders on third down, which led to Henny just throwing it away. There was a running into the kicker flag on the punt, even though the Appalachian State player was blocked into the punter. On the re-kick, Jackson returned it to nearly the 50, and there was a late hit on Michigan, which put Appalachian State at the Michigan 37 to start the drive. So already early in this game, you're seeing a huge impact by Dexter Jackson, the stud receiver for Appalachian State. On second and eight from the 20, Appalachian State lined up five wide. Edwards once again hits Jackson on a slant, and Jackson used his speed for another easy touchdown. And the quick slant is Jackson. He'll run away from everybody. Touchdown, Appalachian State! He actually used a rub route from another receiver to get wide open, and this put the game at 21-14. Michigan fumbled the ensuing kickoff return, but after reviewing, it was ruled that the fumble was caused by the ground. Michigan caught a break here as Charles Davis and Tom... Brenneman noted the def- defense looked defeated walking back out on the field. I think the defense definitely looked defeated when they made their way back out onto the field when the call was initially made, but it looked pretty clear to me that the ball carrier's forearm was down there. I, I thought the announcers kind of overblew it, making it sound like it was close, and they kept pointing out his knee, but it clearly looked like his forearm hit the ground, which caused the ball to jar loose. I, I don't know what you guys thought about it. Yeah, I agree with you, Tristan. I mean, I think they reviewed this quite a while, and I thought it was obvious, you know, from, you know, the first or second look at it. But, uh, yeah, I don't know what they were seeing, uh, the announcers here. But, yeah, that big break for Michigan's defense for sure. You know, you don't want to deal with Dexter Jackson too much after, you know, these last couple drives. And could you imagine how demoralizing it would have been for Michigan going down 21-14 to in the way they did just to turn around? and fumble the ensuing kickoff, that would have gave App State unbelievable field position, all the momentum in the world. And and like the announcers pointed out, I mean, the defense just went out there with their, with their, uh, with the tail pinned between the legs. You know, they would have been on their heels for sure. 
Yeah, and I think that's part of the reason they took so long to review it. In order to overturn this call, they really wanted to make sure they had the the right call because it was a huge momentum swinger that could have put this game even more clearly in Appalachian State hands. But the Michigan offense began marching on the next drive. Henny made a 10-yard pass to Manningham and an 18-yard pass to Mike Massey, the tight end. Henny threw to Manningham near the end zone, but the excellent coverage by Wozier, who tipped the pass. Michigan went for it on 4th and 5 at the Appalachian State 35, but Henny missed Matthews. He was also crushed by Lynch as he got the ball off. Appalachian State took over and used a 15-yard flag on Michigan and a couple nice runs by Richardson to begin the drive. And then Edwards busted off a 20-yard run on 3rd and 5 to make it first and goal at the Michigan 9. Edwards capped off the drive with a 6-yard touchdown run to put Appalachian State ahead 28-14. That drive left Michigan with 2.15 left to score before halftime, and they had all three timeouts. They began their drive at their own 32-yard line. An 18-yard pass to Arrington gets Michigan and Appalachian State territory, and then Henny hit Arrington again for nine yards. Then they called a timeout. Henny later made another big pass, which was 24 yards to Matthews. This gave them first down at the 11. Here they used their second timeout following a run that went nowhere by minor. The note on the screen said that last time Michigan trailed to an unranked team was 2004 against Michigan State, so obviously a a bit more of a high-profile game than what you would consider this one to be. Henny made one more short pass to Matthews, but he had to throw it away on third and four. This set up a 22-yard field goal for Gingell, which was his first field goal in a real game since high school in 2003. So at halftime, Appalachian State went in 28-17. So let me give you guys a couple notes that I took down uh, from halftime. So, I mean, you got to be impressed by the way Armani Edwards is playing, the sophomore quarterback. And I didn't see too many mistakes, and turns out he didn't have any, guys. He finished the half a perfect 7 of 7 with three touchdown passes. So, uh, super hot start right there, and he didn't even have to throw many passes to do it. But then you also see Mike Hart, the Michigan running back, on the exercise bike before the second half kicks off. Uh, which could explain why he didn't play the last several series in the first half. Uh, Maybe he was injured, maybe he was not. I couldn't really find a note on that. They talked about it later in the game, uh, but he said he was fine. But I think as a Michigan fan, you know, you got to be concerned seeing Hart uh, potentially injured. You know, you're down 11 points at halftime. And App State's speed is just killing you, especially Dexter Jackson. Let's look on the flip side, though. I imagine things couldn't have been better for App State at this point. You know, the fans, this had to have exceeded their expectations. And I also thought it was noteworthy to point out, guys, you know, App State did get off to this 28-17 to lead at halftime, but they slowed down dramatically in the second half, and maybe we got some thoughts on that later uh, as this game continues. But they only scored six points the rest of this game. Could be a couple different things, but uh, we'll get into that a little bit. All right, so diving right into the third quarter, Appalachian State received the second half kickoff, but Edwards made his first mistake of the day. He threw a pick on the second play of the opening drive to Morgan Trent. Michigan took possession at the Appalachian State 40, and Miner began with a 13-yard run as Hart continued to watch from the sideline with his helmet on. Not much more after that, Gingell came out to kick a 42-yard field goal, making the score 28-20 Appalachian State. Mike Hart told Carissa Thompson, the sideline reporter, that he was okay, but it's hard to say if he was really being truthful, judging by how they treated him during this game. Edwards rallied the troops on the next drive. He busted off an 11-yard run and made a couple big passes to Coco Hillary, 13 yards and 27 yards. He would have had a touchdown, but on 3rd and 7, freshman receiver Brian Quick dropped a pass in the end zone. This set up a 31-yard field goal for Julian Rauch, 31-20. Several plays into Michigan's next drive, Miner fumbled the football, and Appalachian State recovered at the Michigan 28-yard line. Despite having great field position here, they were unable to score after Edwards was sacked on 3rd and 7. Rauch missed a 46-yard field goal attempt by hitting the right upright. Henny tried going deep for Manningham on the first play. Manningham had separation, but he overthrew it. And then Henny missed Massey on back-to-back passes to go 3 and out. Michigan punted to the Appalachian State 16-yard line. I also noticed during this game a lot that it seemed that Henny and Manningham just weren't on the same page. They had a lot of Throws that were just a little off. I don't know if the timing between them wasn't great or 
if one of them may have been involved in the partying before the game that maybe messed up some of their chemistry. I'm not really sure. After that, Richardson had a nice 16-yard run, but a fumble by Edwards two plays later gave Michigan possession at the Appalachian State 31. It was stripped by Crable and recovered by John Thompson. So you're really starting to see a little bit of messiness come in by Appalachian State. They're starting to get a little nervous here being up on a high-profile team like the Wolverines. Mike Hart finally returned to the field, and Michigan took advantage. On a third and two, Miner ran eight yards for a first down. Then Hart ran three straight plays, five, six, and four yards, the last being a touchdown with 24 seconds left in the quarter. Michigan decided to go for two, but they failed. Henny fumbled the snap and was almost immediately tackled. And that pretty much uh, was the end of the third quarter, guys. But uh, yeah, App State just started screwing up here. Let me just sum up uh, all those mistakes. So Edwards had an interception and a fumble. Then Quick had the drop touchdown. They had the 46-yard missed field goal by Roush. So, I mean, you got to be wondering here, you know, is App State losing steam? Are they panicking? Are they getting conservative? Are they getting scared? You know, it's, it's very interesting, you know, that offense just looked totally different. And uh, I didn't see them really trying to get Dexter Jackson involved either. I'm not sure what the reason for that was after all the plays he made in the first half. But yeah, this App State team just looked totally different in the third quarter. Yeah, definitely. So Appalachian State took over and they ran one play before the quarter ended. So this drive continued into the fourth quarter. So on third and five, Appalachian State took a delay a game. And then they threw an incomplete pass, which led to a three and out. Edwards threw behind his receiver. So Appalachian State had to punt. Johnny Sears had a pretty nice return off the balance, and Michigan got another boost thanks to a 15-yard face mask penalty on Appalachian State. This put Michigan at Appalachian State's 34-yard line. Back-to-back runs by a heart got Michigan to the 20-yard line. Following a false start, Henny bootlegged to the right under pressure. Then he threw across his body and got picked off by Leonard Love, who returned at 26 yards to the Appalachian State 41-yard line. Once again, though, Appalachian State's offense fell flat. They went three and out and punted again. Michigan ran the ball on four straight plays for 32 yards to get across midfield. The drive looked promising, but was slowed by a false start and an illegal formation penalty. This brought up third and 14. Henny ran nine yards, which got them fourth and five at the Appalachian State 33-yard line. Michigan didn't really have a choice here other than to go for it, and they were unable to convert. Henny missed Massey on a pass, which made a turnover on downs with under seven minutes left. Yeah, so Henny missed this pass to Massey on this fourth down play. We talked earlier about where he was bootlegging to the right and threw across his body and had that interception. And even earlier, we were talking about how him and, and Manningham just didn't seem to be on the same page. But it just felt like Henny wasn't really all there. It didn't feel like he was uh, you know, ready to lead this team to be that senior quarterback. He he just felt um, inconsistent, maybe not uh, maybe not confident in his ability to make certain throws or, or making the proper reads he felt a little slow um, and it just it just didn't feel like he was a senior quarterback it almost felt more like he was a sophomore starting his first game not just a senior either a four-year starter to go on that and uh, I mean we mentioned earlier how experienced the Appalachian State secondary was and you saw that play out a little bit here but it wasn't all that you know I agree with you I think Henny you know was just missing some guys straight up and he just didn't look like his normal self yeah, Henny definitely overthrew some open receivers. So it was partially, I know the, the Appalachian State was able to put some pressure on the Michigan defense or offense, rather, but a lot of it was just Chad Henny struggling to complete his passes. So on Appalachian State's next possession, they went three and out for a third straight time. Michigan picked up back to back sacks on second and third down. Terrence Taylor and Crable combined for the first, and then Crable got the second all by himself. So Appalachian State was forced to punt. Sears bobbled the catch, but maintained possession, so Michigan took over. So all of this coming from Appalachian State kind of goes to show how going conservative can really hurt an offense, and it seems like the more aggressive and explosive an offense typically is, the more going conservative hurts them because they aren't able to rely on their their big plays that they normally use. Yeah, I got to agree with you, Alex. Uh, as I said earlier, you know, App State was so hot in the first half, explosive play after explosive play. Uh, in large part because of how involved Dexter Jackson was, I think. 
And then, you know, you see in the second half, they seem to be playing scared. They're getting all these mistakes in the third quarter. And now in the fourth quarter, it's just three and out, three and out. Maybe it was just because they didn't want to blow the lead they had built. But then, you know, you're putting pressure on your defense, you know, because the offense is on the field less and less. And uh, Michigan seemed to be picking up steam here. You know, Mike Hart's running now pretty strong. Uh, and the score, you know, it's getting closer and closer. You know, you make one mistake, you can see it bite you in the butt later in the game. And we see an example of that here on Michigan's next drive. Yeah, and real quick, I don't think that App State's offensive play calling really changed all that much from the first half to the second half. It almost looked more to me like the players were playing more scared. Uh, You know, they came out early in this game, and they just looked like they were running real aggressively. I mean, we talk about how many times did Jackson pull away? How many times was Edwards making the right reads and doing the right things? And then they come out in the second half, and and they can't even get a first down. So I, I don't know how much of it was play calling and how much of it was just the players maybe realizing the stage that they're on and realizing the magnitude of what they're trying to accomplish. I got one other thought and explanation for this. So we mentioned the fact that the defense was mostly stoned Possibly. Maybe in the second half, the marijuana high wore off and they were back to their normal selves. So it was no problem stopping an offense like Appalachian State. Maybe I'm crazy, but uh, that's another possible explanation that I think we can't rule out completely. Either that or maybe maybe Lloyd Carr passed around Jaeger bombs at halftime and just got them <laughs> all drunk. So that way they'd play a little looser. I don't know. Yeah, I think part of it was just uh, coming into this game, Appalachian State really had nothing to lose. And you know, once they got the lead and sat back and thought about it, all of a sudden they were the ones with something to lose. They they were the ones in the lead and they were defending it, whereas before they were just all out on offense. But after that, Mike Hart ran a 54-yard touchdown run. He broke a couple tackles along the way to give Michigan the lead. And now Hart, the senior, still on his feet. Cuts it back the other way. Hart to the 10, to the 5, touchdown! Michigan went for two, but Miner stumbled and was swallowed in the backfield. Michigan took the lead 32-31 to with 4.36 to go. Appalachian State's offense, offensive woes continued. Edwards threw his second interception of the game on the first play of the drive. Brandon Engelman came away with the pick. Michigan's offense is unable to capitalize here. At first, they tried to run the ball to kill the clock. Then, on 3rd and 5, they lined up to pass with 2.17 remaining, but they had to delay a game. The clock continued to run as Henny completed a short pass, so Appalachian State called their final timeout. This set up a 43-yard field goal attempt for Gingell, but it was blocked. So a couple interesting decisions by Michigan here, guys. So they take the lead 32-31. to 31. Uh, They decide to go for 2 here. That way, you know, a field goal ties it instead of beating them. But then obviously they fail that. And then on third and five here, they line up with 217 remaining. And they're going to pass the ball, which I'm not sure what they're thinking there. You know, I think, you know, you continue to run the ball and kill the clock and make it harder on App State. Uh, but then the delay game penalty happened. So I just thought it was odd a couple decisions they made there. Uh, any thoughts on that, guys? Uh, maybe what Michigan was thinking here. Uh, would you have done anything differently? I think going for two is actually the right call. You want to you wanna try to get up by, by three um, make it a tied game if the other team makes a field goal. I do agree that maybe they could have chewed some more clock, though. That uh, was a little risky, but I think going for two at least was the right call. You could make the argument, though, with their kicker being uh, you know, so unproven that they probably wanted to get in a better position for this kicker. I mean, it ended up being a 43-yard attempt for him in, in his first real collegiate game. Uh, so, so maybe that's kind of their thought process is, yeah, we could chew up some clock or if we get in a better position and, and Gingell's able to have a, a 36-yard field goal attempt or something like that the next time we come up on a fourth down. I, I, I don't know. Maybe that, that's kind of their thought process was the 43-yard field goal was a, a long cry from a, a sure thing. This might be some hindsight thinking too, guys, but this was the second two-point conversion attempt that Michigan failed. And, you know, you never want to assume anything college football, but let's just say they went for an extra point on both of those. You know, then they got the three-point lead right now. And then, you know, later in the game, you know, they're not trailing by two. It's a tie game. So that's just, that's just some hindsight thinking. Obviously, you're not thinking that during the game as things are happening, but uh, it's kind of interesting to go back and look at situations like this on what Michigan may have been able to do differently to come away with a win. Yep, going for two is definitely risky. The, the earlier it is in the game, the more risky it is because you can really look back and say, well... We would have had that one point, however many times, it would have been really useful for us. 
But Appalachian State took, took over on offense with a minute and a half left at their own 26-yard line. They needed a miracle. Edwards started off with an 18-yard run and got out of bounds. They lost four on the next play on what appeared to be a wide receiver pass play that they couldn't get off. Edwards made up for it with a 20-yard pass to TJ Corman. He juked the Michigan defender instead of just going out of bounds and got a lot more yardage along the sideline. He was also still able to get out of bounds to kill the clock. A couple quick passes to Batchin and Jackson resulted in another first down. On the next play, Edwards finds Hillary, who was able to run all the way down to the Michigan five-yard line. Michigan called a timeout with 30 seconds left. Appalachian State decided to kick a field goal on first and goal. It's possible they were worried about how the offense had played in the second half, but this is still an interesting decision either way. Before kicking the field goal, they could have taken a knee and ran 20 seconds off and then spiked the ball to stop the clock. But Rouch made the 24-yard attempt and gave Appalachian State a 34-32 lead. Yeah, that whole situation there just kind of confused me, you know, going for the field goal on first and goal with 30 seconds left. Uh, As you mentioned, you know, they could have taken the knee and then spiked it. You know, I think that's a pretty safe bet. You know, that way you got the, if you get the field goal, you win the game, right? But, you know, if you want to be aggressive and say, no, we're going to get a touchdown, that way if Michigan, you know, comes on the next drive, they got to score a touchdown to beat us. I mean, it's still very tough for Michigan to, you know, even be in scoring position or even in a chance to win this game, you know, with the field goal that they kicked on first and goal. But, yeah, just another interesting decision that left me kind of scratching my head a little bit. Well, and I, I don't think we put in our notes here how many timeouts Michigan had left, but it's possible that if they on first down took a knee, Michigan would take another timeout. And then if Michigan had their third timeout still, you know, they snap the ball, take another knee, Michigan takes their third timeout. So if nothing else, maybe you'd have the ability to to drain Michigan of some of any remaining timeouts that they may have. So I, you know, I, I with you guys full heartedly, I think you should have taken some knees and, and maybe spiked the ball or something to set up maybe a fourth down attempt instead of just running out there with 30 seconds left to kick the field goal. Yeah, pretty much the only thing they had to lose was a, a one-yard loss on each knee they took, but it doesn't really matter that much. They could have taken two knees, ran off either two timeouts or the 20, 25 seconds, and uh, kind of set themselves up to kick the field goal and leave Michigan with just you know five seconds left. But they ended up going ahead and just kicking the field goal. They made it. So they went ahead and kicked the ball off to Michigan, which Michigan got the ball at their own 34-yard line. And on the second play, Henny finally connected deep with Manningham after all those attempts. And there was pass interference on this play, but it didn't matter. 46 yards. Now there were six seconds left, and they were at the Appalachian State 20-yard line. Michigan called their final timeout and brought on the kicking unit. Gingell gets the kick blocked. Out of the hole to Mesco. Good snap. Good hold. And the kick is blocked! Appalachian State has stunned the college football world. One of the greatest upsets in sports history. Blocked by Corey Lynch. And now App State pulls off the biggest upset ever. Dang, guys. Gingell blocked on back-to-back attempts. That's, That's one of the things that saved the game for App State here. Looking at the box score now, it looked like Michigan may have won at least on the stat sheet. They outgained App State 479 to 387. Uh, They passed for six more yards. They rushed for 86 more yards. They had four more first downs. They had two turnovers to App State's three. Both teams had seven penalties apiece. App State's for 45 yards, Michigan for 56. Uh, Both teams also converted seven third downs. App State's seven to 13, Michigan seven to 15. But yeah, as I just mentioned, you know, Gingell did miss two field goals. Both of them were blocked, so maybe not necessarily his fault. And Michigan had those two failed two-point tries. So, I mean, that's a couple things to look at that, you know, Michigan might have been able to do differently as we've hit on. But I also found this out about Gingell's luck. Uh, didn't get much better in the season, guys. He only kicked in five games this season. He went three for nine, and they basically were like, yeah, we're switching kickers. This isn't working. And then just to note a couple player stats. So we mentioned Henny, guys, how he didn't appear to be too uh, on page with this guy. He only completed 51.4% of his passes. Uh, ended the day with 233 yards, a touchdown, and a pick. Uh, Mike Hart had a pretty good day, 188 yards on the ground and three touchdowns for 8.2 yards per carry. And Brandon Miner, his backup, added 50 more yards. Uh, Manningham, they said, only had three catches, but I swear I saw him catch five or six passes this game, guys. So I don't, 
know what that's all about. And then Arrington had four catches for 52 yards. But those two wide receivers from Michigan didn't even score a touchdown. Anningham certainly had a lot of targets. I'm not really sure how many catches he had, but they tried a lot. I mean, I'm pretty sure I read through the play-by-play because I was like, wait a minute, I swear he had more catches. In the first half, they said he had one catch. But at least on ESPN's play-by-play, they had Manningham for three catches already. And then, you know, you throw in that big one they had in the fourth quarter and we're already at four catches. So I'm not really sure if that's just an error in the box score or what happened there. Looking at the box score, Mike Hart ended up having 188 yards and three touchdowns. But man, it just watching the game, it did not feel like he had that big of an impact. I know he had a couple of big runs and, you know, we we touched on how he had 46 yards on that opening drive. So maybe that kind of helped beef up those stats where the middle of the game, he kind of faded away for a while. But I, I just didn't feel like he had, um, you know, that kind of an impact on the game with 188 and three touchdowns. Yeah, he had the 46 yards on the first drive. And then I know he had a that 54-yard touchdown run later in the game. So 100 of his yards came off the first drive in that one run. So the rest of the game he had 88, which still good. But, it, yeah, I agree. It certainly didn't feel like he had a consistent impact. Yeah, that's true. And then we didn't even see him the whole game either. You know, he missed all that time, you know, with uh, the alleged injury. But let's look at some of App State's stats, guys. So Armani Edwards, quarterback, he ended the day with 227 yards, three touchdowns, and two picks. Uh, but he completed 73.9% of his passes probably because, you know, he was 7-7 in the first half. And then he had 62 yards on the ground and a touchdown. Richardson, the running back, uh, had 88 yards on the day. Uh, it looked like he was just getting, you know, bits and pieces here. He didn't really break off any huge runs like Michael Hart did. And then Dexter Jackson, he had a huge day. Three catches, 92 yards, and two touchdowns. Yeah, so after this game, uh, Michigan actually fell from number five to not even being ranked in the AP poll. So this was the first time that that big of a drop ever happened. A team went from number five to being completely unranked. That's pretty unheard of. So that goes to show how big of an upset this really was. And for as big of an upset as this was, uh, we kind of talked about how this this Appalachian State team was somewhat similar to what we see now at North Dakota State. The Mountaineers ended up going 13-2 and that year, uh, and they won their third consecutive FCS title. Their two losses ended up being to Woford and Georgia Southern. However, this was the last year that they won their championships. Jerry Moore, the head coach, stayed on board through the 2012 season, and they continued to have success. However, they didn't really compete for any more championships at the FCS level after that. They went 11-3, and 11-3, 10-4, and 8-4, and 8-4 in those seasons. They were the first Division I program uh, up to that point to win three consecutive national championships since Army was able to accomplish that feat in 1944, 45, and 46. So that's quite the... Uh, quite the stat that you have to to hang your hat on if you're if you're Appalachian State of continued success at the highest level let's put some more respect on North Dakota State's name too after seeing that guys not many teams have won three straight and North Dakota State's won eight of the last nine so I mean even at the FCS level that's just incredible so in 2013 Scott Satterfield took over as head coach after Jerry Moore left and that was the final year that Appalachian State was in Division 1 AA FCS After that, they ended up moving up to the FBS level. Uh, Appalachian State moved up in 2014 and finished that first season with a winning record, but they were ineligible because the NCAA has bowl bid rules that prohibited them from playing in a bowl game that year. Every season then, from 2015 to 2019, App State has won both its conference championship in the Sun Belt and their bowl game. In 2019, Satterfield left App State to take the head coaching job at Louisville after Bobby Petrino was fired in November of 2018. Eli Drinkwitz took over at App State for the 2019 season. That 2019 season was kind of uh, a special one for Appalachian State. On September 21st, they were able to beat uh, North Carolina in Chapel Hill 34-31, to representing the first time that the Mountaineers had beat a Power 5 team since the win at Michigan in 2007. Then, on November 9th of 2019, Appalachian State was able to take out the University of South Carolina, beating the Gamecocks 20-15. 2019 was the first season the Mountaineers finished ranked in the AP polls since joining the FBS. They were briefly in the top 25 during the 2018 season, but ended up finishing unranked. 
the one loss Mountaineers were number 18 in the night in the 2019 coaches poll and 19th in the top 25 for the AP Eli Drinkwich only coached that one season at App State and he's now the head coach for Missouri so that, that was kind of a quick stay for him Sean Clark has now since taken over at App State um, after the bowl game. He coached there, and now he's the head coach. Uh, he's been an assistant at a couple different programs, including Louisville, Purdue, Kent State, and he's been at App State since 2014. He was a former player from 1994 to 1998. So after coming off of you know this long-term head coach for 19 seasons, Scott Satterfield was around for a couple of seasons and had you know some pretty good success for you know just jumping up into the FBS. And then Eli Drinkwitz was only around for a season before he he left uh, bigger and better things at Missouri. You know we'll have to see what happens with Sean Clark. Uh, he's kind of an unproven coach um he was mainly just assistants and and different things so this is his first head coaching gig uh, and he's taken over a program that's really hot i was just going to mention you know all the coaching changes and even despite those you know app state's still out here winning games that's something you don't really see at small schools too much you know typically you'll see a head coach build up a name build up a small program you know take that next big job then maybe the program you know stumbles because you know he built it but we still see App State here, you know, after, you know, all the coaches, after Jerry Moore, they're still out here winning games, uh, making bowl games and still beating FBS opponents, you know. So I think that's a – I wonder what it is about App State that attracts recruits, guys, or if, you know, App State's just really good at maybe hiring head coaches, you know, to keep the culture, you know, the way it is. So jumping over to Michigan after this game, Despite losing the game, Michigan ended up having a pretty decent season. They started off 0-2, you know, obviously the loss to App State, and then they followed it up with a loss to Oregon the next week. They ended up losing that game 39-7, to so it wasn't a, a good showing that week either. It was the worst home loss the Wolverines have ever suffered as well. But after that, they uh, managed to rattle off eight straight wins. Uh, they, they were able to beat most of their conference opponents, however their two probably biggest conference opponents came at the end of their schedule and they ended up losing their two final games of the regular season against Wisconsin and Ohio State. They were able to defeat Florida uh, in the bowl game and that Florida team was an Urban Meyer Tim Tebow team. This was the first bowl game that Michigan had won in four years and it was a win for Lloyd Carr in his final game. Michigan finished the season tied with Illinois for second in the Big Ten behind Ohio State. After Lloyd Carr retired, Rich Rodriguez was hired from West Virginia. He had some success there at West Virginia and had things humming in Morgantown, but when he came to the Big Ten, he struggled mightily. His first season there, Michigan went 3-9, and nine, and that's coming off of this season before when they went 9-4. and four. It's the worst record in Michigan school history. It was also the first time in 33 years that Michigan didn't make a bowl game. After that season, multiple Michigan players transferred, citing the offensive and rude behavior of the Michigan coaching staff. Justin Boren uh, transferred to Ohio State, and he ended up becoming a first-team All-Big Ten player in 2009. Players said there was a lack of family values at Michigan. Michael Rosenberg wrote, I'm no prude, but this goes way beyond a few dirty words. I just want to know how Rich Rod ever built a winning team at West Virginia. Maybe it was just because, you know, that was... I believe the Big East still in football, and it wasn't as competitive, maybe, so it was a little easier. Uh, but if you can't even build a culture like a fam, like with family values and stuff, you know, he has all these players transferring. I would imagine, you know, guys like Pat White and Steve Slayton, you know, the stars at West Virginia, might have been trying to transfer too and get to a better culture. So I wonder what the heck was going on, you know, internally with Michigan. Definitely, uh, not good. Michigan was also accused of multiple NCAA rules violations, and on February 22, 2010, the NCAA accused Michigan of five major rules violations after finding that they did not comply with the practice time rules. So because of this, Michigan ended up self-proposing, self-imposing, sorry, a probation and reduced their practice times. Rich Rod and the Wolverines ended up going 5-7 and seven and 7-6 seven and six in the next two seasons before he was dismissed on January 4, 2011. So yeah, I remember a lot of turmoil going on at Michigan at the time, but I don't I don't feel like I fully grasped what was going on and how bad it really was. I know earlier Josh was saying that this loss to Appalachian State was the low point in Michigan football, but I would argue that the the whole Rich Rod era, especially the beginning, was the the low point in Michigan football history. I mean, he really came in and tanked this program for a couple of years and I think really set him back. Brady Hoke came in and he had a lot of work to do. 
Yeah, so like Alex mentioned, after the dismissal of Rich Rodriguez, Brady Hoke was brought in to lead in the Wolverines. Um, he kind of had an extremely promising first season. They went 11-2 and after after all the turmoil. But after that, it kind of turned around, and they ended up going 8-5, and 7-6, and six, and 5-7. and seven. You know, Brady Hoke had a reputation of being able to turn around some programs. He seemed to have a good reputation of being an upstanding guy. Um, he would make the program kind of represent the values that it should after, you know, all the things that we just talked about with Rich Rodriguez. Before Michigan, he was very successful. He turned around a Ball State program. He was briefly at San Diego State and kind of turned them around as well. Uh, and fun fact, uh, Brady Hoke just got hired back at San Diego State, and he will be their head football coach for the 2020 season. So despite all of that, probably based on those records that I mentioned earlier, in 2014, Brady Hoke was fired. He was able to compile a 31-20 and 20 record, but uh, like we said earlier, 11 of those wins came in this first season. He ended up finishing 18-14 and 14 with, in the Big Ten. He was able to get one win over Ohio State, and they won a bowl game against Virginia Tech. On December 30th, 2014, Michigan hired Jim Harbaugh from the San Francisco 49ers. This was a really high-profile hire for Michigan, as Harbaugh had a lot of coaching success, especially with the 49ers and with Stanford, as well as being a former Michigan football player. Harbaugh went 10-3 in his first two seasons in Ann Arbor and followed that up with 8-5, and 10-3, and 9-4. Right now, during his tenure, Michigan has not beaten Ohio State, much to my delight. And he has only won one bowl game. Harbaugh has, however, brought an era of consistency to Michigan that they haven't seen since Carr was his head coach. Despite Brady Hoke maybe being an upstanding guy, he didn't really provide the record that I think Michigan was looking for. And Rich Rod was just kind of a complete dumpster fire at Michigan. So I think Harbaugh has gotten this team to a better spot. Um, it feels like Harbaugh has this knack for always feeling like he's on the hot seat. Or, in the next sentence, he's getting a lifetime contract from the university. So who knows what the actual athletic department thinks of him. But it seems like many people are very torn on his legacy as a Michigan coach and kind of where he has the program right now. In my experience and the people that I'm around, it feels like Michigan fans feel that he may not be the correct answer. And and I think I have to tend to agree with them. What are your guys' thoughts? I think it's interesting because he has brought this consistency to the program that that Rich Rod and Hoke, you like they didn't provide really. They they were inconsistent. They had some some losing seasons and some that were borderline losing. So in one sense, you should be happy with what Harbaugh is doing, but it's his incompetence to win the big games that's really hurting the program. It's still a pretty good spot for them to be in. It's gonna be difficult for them to overcome the talent that Ohio State currently has. Their best bet might just be to wait for Ohio State to fall off a bit because it will happen eventually, they would hope. But it's just hard to say what you could really do. I mean, if you fire him, who are you going to bring in to improve and get that team to a top-tier program like like a Clemson, Alabama, Ohio State? Yeah, I, I think that's a huge thing. You know, if you're going to fire Harbaugh, who are you going to bring in? You know, you're going to have to either take a risk on a, you know, a guy that's at a small school right now or maybe a high-profile assistant. There's just not too many free agent head coaches right now that probably had the pedigree that Michigan's looking for. Uh, but just with Harbaugh, you know, Michigan fans, you know, they probably disagree on what Harbaugh has done for the program. If he's brought it back, if he has not reached quite that point, you know, obviously you want to see him beat Ohio State, which he hasn't done yet. But let me just bring up uh, some of the seasons that Lloyd Carr had at Michigan uh, just before this 2007 season, guys, just for comparison. So obviously in 2006, they went 11-2. and and then going backwards, they went seven and five in two thousand five, nine and three in two thousand four, ten and three, both in two thousand three and two thousand two, eight and four in two thousand one, nine and three in two thousand. And before he had beaten Florida in that Capital One Bowl, guys, he had four straight bowl losses. So, I mean, I think people might forget where Michigan was at with Lloyd Carr. You know, they weren't, you know, a Clemson or an Alabama by any means. Uh, I think Jim Harbaugh, you know, is basically doing what Lloyd Carr did. You know, you expect Michigan to win eight to ten games, which is what Lloyd Carr was doing. 
you know, maybe you could even argue that that 11-2 and season in 2006, you know, when they went 11-0 to start off before that Ohio State game, maybe it was an outlier season. Because, you know, if you look at his track record, he's more traditionally an 8-10 to win coach. And that seems to be what Jim Harbaugh has done at Michigan. So I think he's doing just, you know, what Michigan has always done. Uh, I think it's just, you know, the lack of wins over Ohio State. And maybe, you know, you'd like to see some more bowl wins as well if as a Michigan fan. But I think that's the big reasons why people are disappointed in Harbaugh. But overall, I'd say he's brought them back to what Lloyd Carr at least had them at. Yeah, Carr definitely had a less than stellar career, but it's still going to be remembered as a, a very good career. It wasn't anything phenomenal. He wasn't winning championships left and right. He wasn't winning the Big Ten left and right. But it's interesting because I think Harbaugh is going to be remembered a little different. The expectations when Harbaugh came into the program was that they were going to contend on a national level every single year. And despite having as much success if we as we have discussed, he hasn't contended on a national level every year. So he's going to be looked at in a different light than Lloyd Carr, even though their careers are fairly comparable at Michigan. Yeah, and from my perspective as an Ohio State fan, you know, we, we live in an area where there's a lot of Michigan fans and a lot of Ohio State fans, so we have these conversations quite a bit. I, I think, personally, there is a huge disconnect in the Michigan culture right now for how much they appreciate the game versus Ohio State. I think every Ohio State fan would say that the most important game on their schedule is the last one, and that's the only one that matters. When when Ohio State fans look back in history at their coaches, they look back, and the first thing that they look at is their record against Michigan, and that's how we gauge whether or not a coach is good or bad. You look back to the 90s when Michigan was dominating the series. John Cooper was putting out these amazing teams in the 90s for Ohio State, you know, they were competing. They were up there. They were in national championship discussions and, you know, top five teams, top 10 teams consistently going to Rose Bowls, things like that. But we ended up firing John Cooper because he could not beat Michigan. And that was the big drawback is, uh, you know, I don't feel that level of urgency for Michigan. I don't feel that they, I hate to say, I feel like they, I don't think that they care as much about the game. Maybe that's the wrong way to say that, but it just feels like they don't have the level of respect for that game and how much it means to the two programs that they should. And I think until they find a coach that puts that game on that pedestal, uh, it feels like they might always ride a back seat. I don't know if this is Harbaugh has said this, or if it's Josh Gaddis that has said this, or if it's the fans, maybe they all three have said it, but you know, we talk about all the energy that Ohio State puts into that rivalry game and you know people on Michigan will be like well we're not focused on that one regular season game we're focused on the national championship competing for that every year well how well are they doing at that guys you know if you're gonna put all your energy into that you know you got to win these regular season games you got to put yourself in a position that's even playing that game and if not you know winning against Ohio State would do wonders for the program so yeah, trying to bring in a, a coach to improve upon what Harbaugh has done. There is a high reward to it if it works, but there's obviously a high risk too. And I think the the risk may outweigh the reward because the risk is much more likely to happen, I think. If you bring in a new coach that's not as familiar with the Michigan program and recruits, there there's probably a better chance of them dipping to seven and eight wins every year than jumping up to 11 wins every year. It's very tough to find guys like P.J. Fleck or Ryan Day even. Yeah, so to me, it feels like Michigan really needs to go out and hire one of these young head coaches, you know, in the future. It, I, I think Jim Harbaugh has definitely turned the program around and gotten it to a better place. But to me, it just doesn't feel like he's the guy that's going to be able to get Michigan to be able to compete with Ohio State. And maybe it's going to take them taking that risk that you're talking about, Alex, and going out and finding, you know, a P.J. Fleck or someone of that nature but somebody who understands the culture of Michigan and, and by the culture of Michigan, I think it's got to be someone who understands the old culture of Michigan, the people, the 10 years war type of culture at Michigan, you know, not the, not the Lloyd Carr, even Lloyd, the tail end of Lloyd Carr's career, I guess the 2006 game, you know, it felt like it had a lot of emphasis on it, but uh, once they got Rich Rod and then Brady Hoke and Jim Harbaugh, it just doesn't feel like those three coaches have that same mentality and focus on the Ohio State game. Yeah, and Harbaugh might not be that coach that is going to get him over the hump, but I do think there is potential for him to be be the guy who lays the foundation, kind of how Cooper laid the foundation. Tressel came in and immediately won a championship. 
he has the talent there to do a lot of good things, even if he's not able to accomplish that. At least he has a a great base of talent and skill at Michigan right now that can be built upon in the future. Yeah, so that was fun uh, looking back at this. Um, you know, this game where Appalachian State pulls off arguably the biggest upset in college football history, uh, taking down Michigan and, and to do it in such an iconic, amazing way as blocking a field goal and just, you know, being able to celebrate with your team on the sidelines in front of 109,000 fans. I mean, it was it was quite the scene and quite the upset that I don't think anybody expected. Uh, you know, we want to reach out to you guys and thank you guys for for dropping by and listening to the podcast. Uh, we had a lot of fun talking about this game. Uh, looking forward as the season starts to approach, uh, we're going to talk about doing some, you know, preseason look aheads, kind of some conference breakdowns, what we see. But I think we've kind of been waiting to see how this season is going to play out. We did our episode where we talked about all those non-conference games that we're going to lose out on. And we just kind of want to see what's going to happen with the season. So as as the season draws a little closer, we're going to start doing these conference breakdowns and looking at, you know, what we see as how these teams are going to perform and how we see the season shaken out, even if it is a little bit of an abbreviated season. So again, we want to thank you guys for checking out the Mike Linebacker podcast and uh, hopefully you guys tune in next time. Hey guys, thanks again for listening. Our podcast is currently on Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to download the podcast and give us a review. Also, be sure to check us out on Instagram and Twitter. We are the Mike Linebacker on both platforms. If you have any questions, comments, or any feedback at all, feel free to email us at themikelinebacker at gmail.com.